that time of the week again. It's Flat Out RC Podcast time, the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. My name's Andrew Sill, coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. What an episode we have for you today. We've got Chris Patterson joining me. Chris Patterson, a jet guy. We're talking jets, and we're talking scratch-built jets, and we're talking about an F-111. You've got to stay tuned. It's an amazing story. So we'll be getting to Chris shortly. But before we do, let's have a look at what's been on my mind. Well, what has been on my mind this week? Well, not much. I often say that, not much. But I had an operation uh, last week and to reattach my bicep tendon. And so that's been on my mind. I've been pretty immobile and that kind of thing. And uh now I've got a brand new model sitting here in a crate that I haven't even opened because I can't lift the crate. I can't wait there. So, uh, but what's been interesting is observing a few of the pilots that are going overseas to the Tucson Aerobatic Shootout, the aerobatic event. Uh, Riley Sills is over there. Stephen Gregg's over there. Uh, Aaron Bones Gales over there. So a whole bunch of Aussies have gone over to Tucson, and it got me thinking about traveling for your hobby. And I've talked about this in the past and how, how, how much fun it is. I've done it, uh, you know, been to China a few times and whatever for, for, for aero modeling. But the buzz that you get when you get on an aeroplane and you travel away from your home city and go somewhere else to go for a fly, meet the whole new, you know, whole new bunch of people in a, in a different environment with different cultures and food and all that kind of stuff is just phenomenal and how good it is. And, uh, you know, the challenge, of course, with aero modeling is the models. Uh, that's why you need to do it like Aaron Gahl does and have a model over there in the US so that you can go back any time and just go back and pull your model out. And you know what we should do, actually, we Australians, because, you know, for anybody listening around the world, we're miles away from everywhere else. So we should actually have an Australian model that we keep in different countries that any Australian that goes there can actually use. That's what we need to have, a shared model. Just take your transmitter and your receiver. Everything else is there, and there's a model for everybody to fly. That'd be an awesome idea, especially in the US. And then if it's like an aerobatic model, 100cc, let's all invest in one model and plonk it around the world. We'll put one in China, we'll put one in the US, we'll put one in Europe somewhere, and uh, we just need to find a friendly aero model that will let us keep it there. But I'm sure we could with all our connections, and that'd save on the uh, travel cost. But I always joke that uh, if I had to go to a world championship event, it'd be for uh, discus launch gliding because you could almost put the glider in your suitcase because they're uh, quite compact and very light as well. So you wouldn't have any problems in, in, in transporting them. You don't want to damage them, but be a lot easier than the scale models that the the laws, the David Law and Melissa Law have to travel with uh, across, the, across the earth and the expense associated with it as well. Or we had... Uh, and um, Fraser Briggs from New Zealand talk about how he tries to get everything into sort of suitcase, like 32 kilo limits so that he can get things in his checked in baggage. But uh, sometimes that just doesn't work, does it? So uh, if you get the opportunity to travel with your hobby, jump at it because you'll never regret it. We know that there's a lot of people have gone over to jet events over in the US, Top Gun, Best of the West, those kind of events over in the US. The U.S. seems to be a bit of a hub. There's a lot of lot more aero modeling happening in the U.S. market, um, also in Europe. Um, you know, a few Aussies go over to Europe and visit some of the different events there, the jet events, etc. But uh, but um, just get into it if you can. Just go and do it. I'll tell you what. I'm hoping to now that we're sort of over COVID, travel's freed up. We should be able to do it. 
I'm just getting on top of all my injuries at the moment. Now it's my favourite time of the podcast, the time where we get to talk to somebody else who don't have to listen to my voice. And this week's guest is a gentleman by the name of Chris Patterson coming all the way from uh, Northern Queensland or Queensland, Brisbane area. Uh, I met Chris at the Wang Jets event this year and there was a lot of uh, fanfare about one of his models, which was an F-111 that he scratch built. And uh, and I, to be honest, before I had a chat with um, Chris and interviewed him, I had never spoken, you know, knew, knew Chris Chris's story at all. So we're, we're exploring his story together. But I'll tell you what, uh, we cover a fair bit of ground and it is amazing what this man has been able to do. We will talk about his F-111 and his other exploits as well. So here's my chat with the one and only Chris Patterson. We are back, and this time we are talking to Chris Patterson all the way from up north in Queensland. Chris, thanks for joining me. Not a problem. Now, Chris, I I've, I met you at the Wang Jets event this year, and you had this amazing F-111 jet that everybody was drooling over. So we're going to have a big deep dive into that model shortly, but let's, let's start at the beginning. Where did your journey in aero modelling begin? So my journey started 40 years ago. So it's my 40th year of flying this year. So it um, started when I was 10. Um, I was driving uh, to me a frog at the time. And I kept looking in the window at this control line plan that was sitting in the window of the sports, sports and hobby shop that was in my, my town was Wynnum in Brisbane. And it sat there in the window for six, seven months until I actually earned enough money and went and bought it. And then um, never flown a plane, didn't have anybody to tell me what to do with it. And myself and my dad worked it out. We, I was running control line with a three-metre cable in my front yard. Three metres? Around the tree. Three <laughs> metres of radius. That was my radius. with three metres of radius with a, with a profile uh, with a little Cox uh, motor on the front of it. And we were spinning around that tree. Um, break it, fix it, break it, fix it. But anyways, I got quite of. Um, then I had an F15, uh, FX F15, which was in the same shop. Took me forever to pay for that one too. And then, um, and then um, never flew it actually in control line. I got tired of flying, driving the frog, the Tamiya frog. And then um, I took all the gear out of it, put it into the FX F15. And we, my dad and myself, we took down the foreshore. Didn't have a clue on how a plane would fly radio control world. Had no lessons, no nothing. Went down the local park and we pointed it at um, Morton Bay. Never saw it again. It just took on, disappeared in the distance. That was it. That was my first flight of a radio control aircraft. What's this Airfix model, though? I've never heard. Like, Airfix made um, plastic kits, I thought. Yeah, back then they they had a uh, F-15. It was all balsa. Oh, really? Yeah. And an F-15, so had a, did it have a motor up the front? Yeah, it had a, um, I was uh, 10 in the front of it. So nitro-powered. And so you launched this thing and off it went? Yes. Where it went, I wouldn't have flew. It ended up in the middle of the boat. No <laughs> way. Then we went then to, um, my dad then, then took me out to a Southside Hobbies, and, which was at, um, on Logan Road at Miranda in, in Brisbane. And Warwick then took me under my arm. He called me Wonder Boy after my dad told him told him the story about what I just did. And he called me Wonder Boy. And then I was Wonder Boy forever and ever until Warwick sold the shop. So uh, but Warwick was the one that actually got me on track, 
showed me what to do, and I would stick around. I would I would draw a plan. So my first few planes were never actually a kit. I'd take a drawing in I've done, and where I could sit there for hours with me until we've actually got the plan right, then I'd go and build the thing, and then come back and, and then we'd spend hours again making sure it was going to work, and then he'd take me out and we'd we'd get it flying. Where would you fl- where were you where were you flying? First is out at Tingalpamara Club. So I've been in the club now for 40 years. So this is my 40th year in Tingalpamara Club. And um, yeah, so we started off gliders. I was doing gliders for probably about five years and then then um, got into um, uh, petrol powered again, into methanol, um, which then I had an OS 15 at the time. Uh, Warwick sold me this, um, it was a really secondhand thing. It was re-beaten up. Anyways, I took it home, fixed it up, and I actually still have the, the plane. I still have that oh, sitting really? on the head. That's yeah. cool. The, uh, the covering's pretty tatty now because it's been sitting there for now 35 odd years. And then, uh, yeah, so it's um, pretty had it now. But anyways, that got me and then I flew that for a couple months and that's all. And then I scratch build my own again. So then I had got my first one, which was now it's 25. Uh, FX after that, and then then I put that onto a Cosmo racer, which was in one of the magazines at the time was the Cosmo Racers. So we we built that. We were racing that at the uh, at the club for a long time, and I built quite a few of them for my friends as well at the time. So we were all racing together, and then um, then I, yeah, I ended up with two two of them which I was racing, and yeah. So all my first aircraft were all scratch built. I, it was pretty much I was scratch building everything up until uh, my probably my fourth jet I had, which that was pretty much given to me. So that's it's an interesting story that we we don't often hear that you were scratch building from from almost the start. Yeah, yeah. So I'd never. Uh, Every time I go to an event, everybody says, oh, what kit is it? And I said, it's not a kit. And I said, I've never built a kit. They're all mine. Everyone's mine. And then uh, that went all the way through to when I was well and truly into jet meets. And everybody said, oh, what kit is it? And I said, it's not a kit. <laughs> That's amazing. And so, so obviously, Warwick gave you a lot of guidance in those early days though, to, to, to you know, tell yeah. you what, the right from wrong. Like he, he was, he started jets probably when I, like Dr. Finn. So he was doing OS 91 with um, Dynamaxes when I first started uh, flying. So he was, he was into jets already by then. And then I was about five years in flying. I'd already started with my methanol. And at that time, I really wasn't, I had a four channel uh, high tech radio at that point in time. And at that point in time, I was going from glider to, uh, prop in the same day with the same radio with the same servos and the same battery all on the same day so i would i'd start in the morning gliding i'd take all my gear out of my glider then then go in the afternoon because we had morning was gliders afternoon was prop so I, at lunch i'd be sitting down at lunch i'd strip the glider out put it all on the prop plane and then go fly again oh gee and on the same battery it's like now that I think about it, I would never have done it because I was in the same four cell pack for like nine hours in the day. Like my dad had dropped me off at eight o'clock in the morning, he'd pick me up at five in the afternoon. I'm, I've done, I don't know how many flights in a day, but I was flying all day. 
on one single four pack, four cell pack. That is crazy. Like that that dedication to pull, strip a model. This is, I was talking about. I can't remember recently. One of the guests was talking about this, and, and I, I sort of forgot about it because now we just take it for granted. We get our two point four gig radio out. We can have you know hundreds of models on our radio set up. Just change the model and the radio off you go. But it wasn't like that back in the day. And he was saying how he'd ha- if you had two models, I think it was Mario Pachapesi, Mario that I had last week, Pachapesi, whatever his name is. He um how he would set the linkages up and everything exactly the same on each model, and then he could just use the same radio settings. Uh, yeah, which oh, it's just same, same with me. I had the um same. The arms were in the same position in all models, so all I did was just remove the servo, drop it in the next one. It was in the right spot every time. Uh, so, yeah, so I was just move, move, move all the time. And I'd be, I'd only have the two planes at the time. I had what glider in the morning, prop in the afternoon, take the gear out, move it across, move the battery across, and the receiver across because you move the receiver as well. A whole lot moved across. So yeah, so that's where I came from from that. But, um, I just don't think kids nowadays would have that commitment and that dedication to do something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, take my tools with me and screwdriver and, and yeah, yeah, we're going. How did you take to the flying, like radio control? Was it something? I remember I was I was flying my first my first prop plane. There's one day, and I was like a, I was ten in the front of it. it wasn't. Up. It wasn't particularly fast, and I'm coming around. I missed the runway. I landed on on the grass, and I remember this old guy. His name is Dave. I can't remember his last name. But anyways, he he comes over and goes, "You missed the runway. That's not a good thing." And I said, "Well, I'm still there." And he goes, "Yes, hit the middle of the runway next time." <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, but anyway, he, he was a little bit off putting. But anyways, um, it took time, and it's like. Today it's easy with teaching. You got buddy box. Somebody takes over. Back then you were just passing the pass the parcel all the time. So you make a mistake, it's like game over pretty quickly if if the other person wasn't quick enough to grab that radio off you. So um, and even today I'm probably a little bit old school with that too, with how I teach my students at school. Whereas I start off holding the radio with the student and yeah. Similar to how I got taught, and I feel that's a lot better than what it is now with the body boxes. Um, but back then, yeah, it was different. Well, you know what? We did what we could do. There was no alternative, yeah. really, was there? No, but it was uh, flying by the seat of your pants pretty much back then. <laughs> Thinking about the batteries I was using, like they were old nickel metal hydrides, they were like, Thousand milliamps, and I was using that for nine hours in a day. That's was doing pretty good. <laughs> I, I know, like that 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 is amazing that you were able to do that. Uh, you know, yeah, it, it just it baffles me because now I, I'm checking my batteries after almost every flight. Yeah, and that's where everybody is now, and we're all we're always very conscious of running out of power now. Um, so yeah. Even so, with the, my more um, complex aircraft now, I'm more conscious of my battery. Because the last thing we do is have 30 kilos falling out of the sky. Um, when I first started, when you were like, looking at a one and a half kilos when I first started. So, what did you progress to model wise? Like, you know, what were your steps? 
back then I like I was only doing prop for probably five years. I like glider prop. And then Warwick was then playing around with like I got a 46SF at the time, which I still have. My actual my son has actually got that 46SF now in his first book and using it. So, anyways, I got it progressed and got a 46SF. And this was all in the first five years of me flying. So by this time I was about 15. And he started playing around with making a very cheap Dr. Ben aircraft. So he was using a uh, 11.6, two 11.6 props cut down to four inches and then then cross-checked them into each other. So half-checked them. So they half-checked across, so you had a four-bladed prop and then put a spinner on the front of it and then made made a shroud inside the aircraft and slid it inside and that was a cheap duct of fan. Okay. Yeah, so we, he his first one he did was a MiG-15, and uh, as soon as I saw it, I said, I'll go make one. And he goes, oh, do you want plans? I said, no, 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 I'll build it myself. I went home. He just told me, buy this, buy this, buy this. So I bought that. Um, so it was using Mylar as the ducting liner. So it wasn't like he was using fiberglass back then. It was a Mylar, um, 0.6 mil Mylar tube that we made. Um, that was the intake and outlet. Plus, so we had a, uh, a plywood ring. For the, the prop, and that was for the duck for the, the fan to sit in, and we made a dolly and we ran them off, and that's where I first started. And it was like a standing buff, standing muffler spinning at um, fifteen thousand RPM huh. on a four bladed. That's um, great. We're playing, playing like two kilos, and I, I was flying that for a year, and then all of a sudden I, I saw one of my friends. He had a um, forty six. Um, with a tune pipe on the back, so it was a rear rear exhaust. It was for a um, uh, one of the pylon races. So I grabbed grabbed one of them off him, and then th- built another one, put undercarriage in it. So I put spring air retracts in it and all, and with the same prop, and I, I was getting two and a half kilos out of it, and and built another MiG fifteen with full undercarriage, with the same cross prop, and that was my my second jet. That's crazy. How did they fly? Oh, so great. Really? I flew them in Andrew as well. Um, I had, uh, at the time, because I, I, I had two, two of the ones on the dolly, and then I had another one with my, with my undercarriage. So I, ended up, I gave one, I had all three of them in the air in my uh, first time at Amberley Jet Meet. And this was many, many moons ago when Amberley was on. Uh, Paul Sackett was um, running that show at this, that point in time. And um, I had, um, I just, at that point in time, I met Kevin Dodd for the first time. Um, and I'd known Kevin for about a year at that point in time. And I said to Kevin, can you take up my the one with the undercarriage? And I gave the other one on the dolly to one of my other friends to fly. And I flew my other one. And we had all three of them in the air all at the same time. And that was pretty cool to see all, all three of them flying in time in formation. And... Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. I've heard a lot of stories about the old ducted fan days, and and generally, most people said oh they were underpowered. But it sounds like yours flew okay. Oh, they were underpowered. You need the curvature of the air. Um, I remember um, I had my first time I went to Leeton Jet Meet. It was I think it was about the second or third Jet Meet at Leeton um, at that point in time, and I was it was I just got my license. I was about, I was 18, just got my license, and I had at that point in time I'd 
advanced to 91 OS with Ramtex in it. And then um, I had two of them at the time. I had an F15 and I just built myself a, a Gripen, oh, not a Gripen, a, a Sub Vicon. And, and, and we went down and it was a hell of a drive down there, pouring rain all the way and we got there and it was sunshine. Um, but yeah, anyways, got to that one and that was my first first long distance trip I, I remember going to and um, there's videos of of me down there all this nice fluoro stuff I, I used to wear a lot of fluoro back then back in the early 90s um, and I've been I take my 15 and like it's all scratch built too both aircraft are scratch built no not like everybody in there it's like really scratch built again and then um, I'd only been taken off the grass, and here we have a canvas runway, and then I'd never flown off a smooth runway before, so I, I did the same as I normally did, parked it in front of me, took off, went tried to take off. Um, runway is about 150 metres long. I parked it in the middle, had 75 metres of runway, didn't quite make the end of the runway. They had a fence at the end of the runway, took off, hit the, hit the main undercarriage oh, no. on the top of the fence, swung it around, took my nose off it. Um, two hours later, I had that, all that all those pieces back together, and a lot of my friends, my friends that I've had for a long, long time, they they'll say, yeah, "Give it to Chris. Chris will fix it." And you go, "Why?" And I said, well, "He'll sit on the edge of the runway." And I used to do this gambling. He'll sit on the edge of the runway with his bottle of Zap and stick it all back together as Zap and Biker, and you'll be flying by the afternoon. But anyways, I did that. I put it all back together again. And then, um, and this was probably my first major, major accident that really took the wind out of me. Um, I took off with my Vigan and there was a guy called Stan Kay. Um, he was an interesting person. And then, um, I was in my first lap with it. And this is like my first lap flying at, at this particular jet mate. I've never flown in the field before. I just did my first lap. I turned the corner, come down the runway. I'm 30 feet in the air coming past with it. And it wasn't one of those planes that got up on the step real quick because canards at the front, not many people were flying canards back then. And then um, I just come past myself and all of a sudden it just exploded in the air. I just had this glimpse of it, like fiberglass F-18 coming from the left. He was going the wrong way. I just come past and just hit me bullseye right on the nose of the oh, plane. Oh, really? I remember the, remember the nose when I picked it up. Like it had his front was still stuck in the front of my plane. So mid air. It was in mid air collision. Oh. First, first after flying at least. It was um. So my it took us. It was still coming out of the air half an hour later, literally, because oh. it was dead, dead still. No, no wind, no nothing, and. It turned it into dust. It was still coming out of the air. Really? There's videos of it, uh, that I've got from a lot of other friends. It's quite hard to do that. Hmm? It's quite hard to do that, to, to have it a mid-air. It is. But, yeah. Uh, I, like, I remember, like, the the, duck, the Ramtech, it, it destroyed the engine. It took the head off the top of the engine, took the bottom of, off the fan, yeah, that, that's how how the impact was. And I got nothing out of that one, that and that really took the wind out of me because I've just gone from, and like literally I'm 18 at this point in time. I'm only 
not even working. Oh, I did, did part-time work as a laborer at that point in time. And just lost $3,000 worth of stuff. And that was a lot of money to me being that age at that point in time. And I was back then. I'm a similar vintage to you, and and uh, yeah, I could attest to three thousand dollars at the age of eighteen. You could buy a car almost for that much back then. <laughs> not a good one, but you could. No, no and like I had put my heart and soul into the plan. It was all scratched all as well. So um, there's, yeah, I was being held back. Put it that way. <laughs> okay, so then you know, how did you recover from that? What was your next step after the midair? Ah. Uh, I got over it. Um, it was I, it was the first time I met Ken Mollison at the time too. He uh, he came over and and put his hand on my shoulder and says, "Always the next one." I remember him saying that saying that to me. Always the next one. And he took me over and he showed me his F4 Phantom that was destroyed because he knew I scratched all over it. And it was it was like half a Phantom had one wing, one power plane, a fin, and, a, and half a fuselage. And he said, "It's yours." So that's what I ended up taking it home and ended up rebuilding the thing. Um, didn't fly. I took it to, I put twin, twin 91 OS's EFs in it with two RAM techs in it. And um, I got a photo of the newspaper of it being held with Tyson Dodd on the back of it. And Tyson, I've been known out sales for 30 odd years now. And then, um, he was holding the tail of it. He was probably 13, 14 at this point in time. Um, and I got the video of it. It's like the runway ambly at that point in time had a nice curve in it. So it curved over the top. Everything disappeared on the other side of the curve. It used the curve. It took off on the other side. And by that time, I couldn't see the thing. It was that far away. And then um, stalled, stalled, and that was the end of that. Um, but anyway, that was that was. One X one, but you get that. So things aren't going so, well. You've got two, two, yeah. two for two. No, we always have those. And this is part of your scratch building. You've got to learn from your mistakes and everything. So after that, uh, Warwick again, he he was building a Foxfire at that point in time. It was white and orange, OS 91, all bolts, all built up. He gave me the plans for it. I went back and built it. I ended up building 13 of them. I built um, and look, that was... It was probably 12 of them was for me. and I, No, 11 of them was for me, and I built two for other people. So it was Andrew Tisdall I built one for, and, and I built one for Tyson Dodd as well. And then um, it progressed through. It changed. I changed design over the time as I was building them, and I ended up being from a box aircraft to some being a lot more curved in their shape. Literally, it was a box plane. But it would do 300 pretty easily. I built them for years and years and years, and every and no, nobody really knew that I always had another one being built at the same time. Because I'd, I'd be always trying myself and pushing myself, and I was always too gun ho. And I'd break one, and I'd come out the next weekend again, and I'd paint them all the same. I'd come out with another one the next weekend, so I was able to build one in like forty hours, and I'd, and paint it all up, and I repaint, and all of them were the same color. And then while that one was flying, I was always fixing the the previous one so so yeah and eventually i ended up with um with warwick's as well warwick ended up and he had enough of his he then passed it off to me and i was flying it 
and I ended up having four oxeyes flying at any one time you know, for a long time. And then I then there was um, I got to the point where Kevin ended up bringing the first JPX in, and that changed everything for me. So he brought in the JPX two forties uh, um, propane, and he put that into a started off with the Saab Vigan with that, and then I was pretty much sold as soon as I heard the turbine. I was sold. I've got to have one eventually. But at the point time, this was like this was um, that '96 when he first brought that in, and then he was flying that for a couple of years, and he was the only one flying turbine other than. Uh, uh, Chris Markley, which was over in Western Australia. And we did it. Um, I went with Kevin and Tyson over to Western Australia for a jet lead. I took Fox with me over there and uh, in my yellow aircraft F-16 at the point. And that, that was pretty much the yellow aircraft F-16 was my pretty much my first kit that I'd ever had. And that was given to me by one of my friends and I just put it together. And um, I took it over and and then I got to see how the turbines actually flew, and he was flying that in the Scorpion at the time, and then put it in the Mirage. So Chris had it was two two forties at the time, and, and that was pretty impressive seeing a Mirage take off. And, and they were only little. Like you, you compared what we're flying now, um, if you know what the size of a uh, free wing F twenty two is, yeah, that was the size we were putting turbines into. They're small back then. Yeah, so these engines were, yeah, like you look at the, the X45, you're looking at half a kilo to a kilo in weight on the entire engine. You're, your whole mass of the aircraft was the turbine back then. And you're flying three and, a half, three and a half, four kilos of engine when you're only getting four kilos of thrust. Really? Out of it. Yeah. So your whole mass of the aircraft is the engine plus the fuel you're carrying. So you had to build them really pretty light back then. And that, that was a that was a trial, and so it was um, so it was uh, ninety seven was my first engine. I got that was when the first carrier engines came out because I didn't want propane. That was too dangerous. I'd seen too many bombs go off, mushroom clouds go off with the propane. So I bought the um, uh, JPX two two sixty K, which was the kerosene version of it, and then. Um, some people think it's hard to start a turbine now. You should try one when it's totally manual. Mm, yeah. When you've got a gauge plugged into it, looking at the, the bar setting, you you pretty much you've just got a speed controller running the pump. And then you've got a, a little tiny um, finger dial that you're turning to put your fuel pressure in, which is in the on the pump. So you have to see it see the pump because that was on the pump. And and you had to get that up so you were at 1.2 bar at full throttles. And you had to do this every flight. It wasn't like set, go, and you flew the whole day. You had to set it and do this for the whole day. So every flight, you was tuning the engine. Yeah. That'd be it. And I was, it was awesome times. Like I was the third person in Australia at the time flying a turbine. And that was pretty impressive that I, like, I'm at this point, I'm just 21 flying a turbine. And Thinking I'm the only, oh, there's only three of us in Australia flying turbines. So this is all, all this turbine uh, 
investment that all the all the Australians have made. There's so many of them flying now. It's all partly your fault then. Yeah. <laughs> so all the all the money that people have spent on all these jets. So that, that's my fault. That that's it. Uh, the Australian yeah. economy is destined to to drop as a result of the, uh, the lack of finances due to people buying turbines. Yes. So that yeah. So that was that was pretty cool. I put it in the Foxfire. So because I knew the Foxfire back in front, uh, I put it in the Foxfire. And, and back then, nobody knew about how to do a tarp like and and properly because uh, everything Chris Monkley and Kevin were doing, the engine pipe was hanging out the back, and I put this this thing and I put a pipe in it. Nobody was thinking about how the pipes were working, and I had to work that one out myself. And the first one I did with the Foxfire, it wasn't very successful. I, my first flight, the engine was going back to France. Um, so it, I had made an aluminium tube. Nobody talked about stainless steel back then. I made this aluminium tube, shoved it up the back, and nobody knew about the, the funnel you had to put at the front of the pipe. So I pretty much hit the... Talcon on a um, JPX looks like a uh, goes from small to big to small, and you've got a, like a 30 mil outlet on the turbine, uh, and that was just to increase its thrust a little bit. Um, I pretty much I shoved the pipe straight over the top of the back of that, and that was only like 60 mil diameter. Nobody could tell me whether it was right or wrong. I was the third one in Australia, so I, and nobody overseas was doing it at the time, and. And the internet wasn't around uh, at that point in time, not like it is now. So, uh, yeah, I shoved that on and ran it down the runway and hold to hold. Um, the more speed you get, the slower, the less thrust you get when you do that to a turbine. So I took it, as soon as it got off the ground, it ran up airspeed and I ended up stalling uh, out of the sky from about 30 feet up because the engine over temp shut down and that was the end of that. So back then the rules stated if you damaged a turbine, you'd have to go back. Didn't matter what sort of crash it was, but the engine was in like okay, you'd have to go back. So I had to send it back to France and that cost me a lot of money sending it back to France. It was almost the same amount of money it cost me to buy the engine. Uh, back then like four kilos of thrust was was about five and a half to six thousand dollars for four kilos of thrust, and your engine is still weighing three and a half kilos back then. That's just crazy. So, yeah. So, anyways, that was a big learning curve, and then then I did a lot more testing after that. And then we learned that it needed a bigger pipe, and ended up putting a hundred mil pipe on the back of it. And I still didn't put the bell mouth on the front. It, I was just sat it inside the hundred mil pipe, and that that worked really, really well. And then. Um, I flew that for about a year and a bit, and then all of a sudden, uh, somebody mentioned there was an F-18, yellow aircraft F-18, that was available, stuck in a mould. So the person had tried to mould it, it was still in the mould, stuck in the mould. At that point in time, I didn't know how to mould anything, but anyways, I picked it up, like it was only like half an hour from me where I was living at the time. Um, picked it up for really, really cheap. It was like $500 for this twin engine ducted fan F-18. And then um, I put, at the time, the first one, I had put twin 91 DFs in it. And I flew that for a year and with that in it. And it um, it was a good thing. So you got the plane out of the mould? 
I took took the well, I, the plane was in the mold. I gave it to Paul Sackadak because I knew he did fiberglass and he finished the mold for me. So he he completed the mold, made me a few modifications to suit for the duct defense for the Ramtex because the Ramtex needed a little bit more air than what they did with the Dynamaxes. So we opened up the intakes a bit more to get more air in the front, and that that flew really really well for about a year and a half, and then and then I got tired of that, and then I. Um, Paul was nice enough to pull another one out of the mould for me. Then I'm, at that point in time, like I'm flying duct vent and turbine still at this point in time, I'd bought a second JPX. And that and that was in the hope to put it in the F-18. So, uh, so this was in 2000 when this happened. And I put that together and and... Kevin, oh, like I was the first one, twin turbines. Nobody else in Australia or overseas at the time was doing twin turbines, especially on JPXs. And that was, it was a, interesting just to get them to start because nobody was, nobody knew how to start two engines together on a, on a non, it was what, like I wasn't using uh, radios with programming back then still. It was a radio for the plane. So it was, it was an analog radio, no computer in it. And then technology was always against us. Um, yeah. So, anyways, we we worked out that we Warwick ended up. He had his technician at the time. We made up a, a little box that went in between the two engines that I could then flick the switch and put the other one engine into just idle and allowed us to start the second engine. And that's how we started it. We had this little box that put the put the other engine into idle and left it sit there so it was idling. Which then gave me control over the um, the other engine. Start the other engine. And by the time I had both engines, we'd moved the slider across, and both engines were in in power, and they were, they'd sit there idling. And so the first time with that, we and um, I was able to get out to Amberley easily back then, and I took it out to Amberley, and, and it was only my parents and Kevin Dodd was signing it off. At that point in time, and I told a couple of my other friends, it turned up Amberley and there's a thousand people there. Thousand? Thousand people there. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> and we, and I'm signing in and everybody else is signing in. And everyone else, why are you here? Oh, we're here to see your plane fly. Like, this was a totally unknown aircraft. Oh, we really? Like, we're coming back to fan version, but nobody had flown twin turbines. And I guess that's why everybody was there. Everybody come to see me to fly this wind turbine aircraft. Were well, they all aero modelers? All aero modelers. They were all aero modelers, plus their families and everybody, and they're all camped out just like you would see at a rocket launch. <laughs> no all, way. all camped out on the side of the runway waiting to and I, that was it was pretty bizarre back then, like me being the age of what it was. Um, having all these people sitting there waiting for me to fly. Is, and that, that's all they came out for. And then um, we were there, and it was about 9, 9.30 in the morning, and I'm still setting up. And all of a sudden, Channel 7 rock up <laughs> with the helicopter over the top of Embley. Uh-huh. And the, the guys that organised for me to be on the runway go, what the, what the, why is Channel 7 here for you? <laughs> <laughs> and then Channel 7 just landed. They had no permission to land on Embley at all. Just landed straight on the run, straight off, just off the side of the runway, they landed the chopper. And then come over to do an interview. 
And this is 2000. And you hadn't even flown the plane yet. It was like made in flight. I'd never flown the plane. I'd never flown it. And here I am on TV. <laughs> they put me on TV for a test flight in turbines with Long Life 18. So, and then, um, yeah, that was pretty, pretty spectacular. The aftermath was a bit ordinary. They had the flight go. Flight went awesome. Um, the landing was a little bit rough. I had I didn't really want to fly, but but because I had ninety degree degree crosswind. So anyway, so I, pretty much you get to that point where you got so many people waiting. You got Channel Seven there wanting to film the thing. You can't really say no, can you? No, no. So yeah, so I ended up flying it. Um, so I was nervous as all. Um, Tyson was holding the tail of it because. We we ran it up the full power. He's he's on the end of it holding it, and we ran up the full power and let it. He let it go, and um, I was a lot way down the runway, so I was away from all the other people at the time, and I didn't even realise it got airborne. I was so focused on just keeping it straight down the runway, and all of a sudden I realised I'm I'm ten feet in the air, and, and Kevin's tapping me on the shoulder and he says, "You better fly it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, we were we were up. Or a full tank load and then come in and I got caught with the crosswind. I damaged the left hand leg and it rolled off the side of the runway. But apart from that, it was pretty good. But, but if you Google it, you can, can see the video of me flying in my F 18. Okay. I've got to Google that. What, what what should I Google? Uh just um I can't remember. I'd have to find the link again. But but it is on YouTube. Okay. Somebody put it up. I'll do a search YouTube. I've got, I've got the video as well that's on from Channel Seven as well, they sent me the video of it. Oh, that'd be cool. Um, I just—it just wasn't just Brisbane. I ended up on TV for. I ended up nationwide. twenty-year-old, just built F eighteen twin turbine first in Australia, <laughs> and with my with my full interview on there. So that was pretty that's cool. That's really good. And that's pretty much the first time I'd really put been put in the the limelight of having lots of people standing there. To watch me do a flying aircraft—that's a lot of people. Um, it was. I was yeah, a lot of pressure on a twenty-one-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. As, and 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 there would have been a fair bit of expense in the model as well. So there was, a, there was a, you know a lot of things working against you mentally. Well, you think back then, like uh, JPXs, and they were five and a half, six thousand each. Um, and that was a lot of money for putting into a, into a jet. Obviously, you didn't do what most males do and get involved in cars, motorbikes, boats, fishing, all that kind of stuff when you turned 18. You, you were... Ooh, jets. Yeah, you were just hooked to jets. Yeah, I was just hooked on the jets. Um, ever since, that's all I've done is pretty much jets for myself. Um, it's jets, always jets. Um, well, let's, let's fast forward to the F-111 project because... That is the, the the model that every you know, it's the latest and greatest that you produce and and everyone has fallen in love with it. So this F one eleven, how did that that project come about? Um, when I was growing up, so I was six seven. Uh, Dad was working out at Amberley at that point in time. He was in the canteens. He wasn't doing anything particular. He was just serving everybody food, etc., and giving them drinks. Um, but he knew when the F-111s were flying because he used to talk to the pilots all the time. So he, I'd go out there frequently with him and we'd go out and sit on the end of the runway. And back then you were allowed to. You were allowed to go out in the runway and sit there with your car on the end of the runway. We'd sit on the, sit on the front of the car and watch the 
triple ones take off and then do the dump and burns and come back and because they'd fly away then they'd have their procedures back then they would come in and they would do a dump and burn to reduce their uh, fuel load to land so they'd come over doing dump and burns reducing the fuel load and come in and land and we'd be there for hours watching them take off and landing and take off and landing and that's when i fell in love with the triple ones um plus it was a good bad thing um, at the time um but yeah that was a good thing and then um then some years later then uh, there was another person it was harry german he built a smaller f-111 and he didn't have a lot of luck with it um but kevin dodd ended up getting a couple of them and then put jpx's into it uh, never swung the wing um it would, they could move the wings could move um but again that the technology wasn't really there we were running he was running jpx in a um, single engine out the back with the tube and i remember once we had a, quite a few of them going to the ground um but anyways then um then there was um when i first met kevin it was at tingale Pomara club i'd at the time i'd i had fallen in love with the tornado and i'd started building this big one but i thought i would better build a smaller one first so i put an os46 in the front of the SF, um full swing wing nobody done swing wing before nobody had ever moved a wing before in flight and First time I met Kevin was he plonked his plane down and he had a duckle pan, Byron duckle pan F-15 at the point in time. And he put his plane down. I'm looking at it because I was so interested in the jets at the time because I'd already started with jets. And then um, he looked at mine and, and then I moved the wing and he goes, what the? The wings move. And I said, yeah, wings move. He goes, has it flown? I said, no, no, it hasn't flown yet, but plan to. Anyways, that one wasn't so successful. It, um, it, um, it took off and I had, not knowing I had put lead in the wingtips. Why? Thinking the center of gravity has to move backwards. Uh, so in flight, wings go back, lead and wingtips move center of gravity back. And that, that, it was a plausible idea. Um, that was in discussion with Warwick at the time. That he even thought, yeah, it's plausible. Because everything I remember, Warwick kept calling me Wonderboy. Because I always come up with these nutty ideas. <laughs> And then, um, yeah, that one didn't work so well. It took off, it flew, but then all of a sudden um, I pulled it tighter and the centrifugal force snapped it in flight because it had all this extra weight on the wingtips and it didn't have enough flight characteristics ability with all that lead in the tip to counteract the centrifugal force when you roll. And it, yeah, it tipped all, high speed tip all snapped in the air and ended up in. So anyways, that one was written off. And then I built another one. I just built it very similar to what Foxfire was, just a box plane. Used the same wings, took the lead out wing tips, and then put 46 on the front. And I flew that for at least a year and a bit with the wings on. And I was flying all the time, wings back. And I was the only, only person that I know that had in it ever flown an aircraft with a 46 OS on the front of it with swinging the wings back. And, and yeah. How did the plane change its flight characteristics after you swung the wing back? Just need an upper elevator trim. And that's where I first started with learning how to do a swing wing. And 
Um, I guess I was probably 16, 17 when I was doing that. So it was a nutty idea back then. <laughs> yeah, nobody had done it before, so I had to do it. Um, then I started building a tornado, but I was building it all out of balsa and um, and this was in between the in between that and building their F-18s with turbines. I hadn't got into turbines at this point at the time. I was building out of balsa this uh, tornado, and technology was against me. I I could couldn't moving the full flying tail plane. The servos weren't strong enough, and I could see it wasn't going to work. So I, I never ended up finishing that project. I had a half done, and servos weren't there, and technology wasn't there. The, Radio wasn't ability in the radios back then. So it was always waiting for the technology, I guess, for the triple one. So anyways, it was um, um, I then built my MiG-15. So after the Fox size, I built my what is called my Voyager. Voyager is my yellow aircraft. And at the point in time in the Bandit, um, Bennett. It's the um, twin boom one that BBM does. I liked it. Couldn't afford it. But anyways, I ended up uh, getting a Bennett plane and realised that the Bennett was actually built off the same plane. The, the other one with the twin booms was built off the same plane. They just took the tail off the plane and put the engine in. So anyways, I then modified the Bennett plane to suit for myself. And at the point in time, I'd just done my second twin engine aircraft, which was my SU-27. Um, and learnt a lot about um, fiberglass with that one, which um, didn't go off so well. I did half a lap, the fins fell off. <laughs> and <laughs> so that was at Mangalore down in Victoria, that happened. Uh, left a very big divot in the bitumen road opposite the runway at the point in time. Um, and that had twin JPXs in it, and that was that was pretty much the last time I did twin JPXs was in that. And because I, I I written off one engine, and that point in time uh, JPX had stopped servicing, and they had stopped building engines, so I couldn't really get that engine service. So uh, Kevin had stopped flying JPXs at that same point in time, and um, I had the ability to do out of the two engines plus what Kevin's parts, so I had another. I was able to keep one JPX going for my Foxfire, which then I put into Voyager, which then that ended up in my MiG-15, and then my prototype MiG-15 then ended up was when I then purchased my first JetCat 120. My first JetCat 120, um, when they first came out, they were slow spool, seven-second spool, gas star, uh, and that was back in... Uh, 2001, when I first bought my JPX, uh, the okay. JetCat 120. And then, then I built, bought one at the beginning of the year, bought the second one at the end of the year. And then um, in the same year, I had then did, um, um, went to Thailand for JetWorld Masters. And that was an experience. I took a MiG-21 to that, um, came last. But anyway. Is what it is. Got that. Yes. Hang last. Um, but got that experience. And at the same time, I was building F 18 again with the twin 120s in it. And I flew that with, flew the F 18 with two 120s in it back then. 
And that was, nobody had done twin 120s back then either. So I was the first one with a twin jet cap um, 120s in it. And that was always seen as an interesting one to watch. And I flew that for uh, about two years. And then I broke that one, built another one, then, and then broke that one. And that one's still sitting up in my hand, up on my rack. But those engines I have had since 2001. Um, thanks to Peter Agnew for that, for all the servicing and repairs. Because one of the one of the crashes I had with the with them, uh, with the F18, I was using carbon fiber bulkheads back then. It, it literally sheared the engines in half, and sent it back to Jackcat, and they fixed them. And they were like four pieces. Two pieces to each engine, it was the front and the rear, in half, and it went back to Jack Cat. Jack Cat put them back together again. Um, so so that was that was the probably the last major incident those engines had. So then I I put them in my I had one on the back of my Voyager, which then I flew that too fast and run that in the ground at four hundred kilometers an hour. And then got that one fixed. And then the, the other one would stay in my MiG-15. So I built my MiG-15, the MiG-15 UTI at the time. Nobody, and this was all scratchbook too. Um, BBM had their MiG-15 at the time and I looked at it and go, and I'd just come back from the World Masters and they had the calf MiG-15 there and I liked the calf one. That was too much money for me. And then, um, so I built my own, just BBM size at one six scale. So that 120 stayed. I first flew that in 2006. It is still flying now. So it's my Red MiG 15 with 622 on the front. So it flew um, January 2006. Uh, won its first scale meet at Bangaratta that year. And won a quite a few after that uh, with that one. And still flying, still winning, still a good thing. But anyways, that engine stayed in it up until uh, Four years ago? No, ended up with a, uh, a uh, Jet Cap 160, which then put into it, derated it down to 120, saved myself fuel because I only had two litres of fuel on the thing. Um, and everybody thinks now when I say there's only two litres of fuel on it, still a lot of people go, How do you fly that with only two litres of fuel? It's like power management um, gets me around. And I can do a nine minute flight on two, two litres of fuel. Mm -hmm. Up is flying on four to six, and I'm still yeah two liters of fuel on it. Um, but yeah, so it everything around the F111s all stem around those those one twenties because two kids now I can't afford to buy new engines, so those two one twenties are in my F111. Uh, so the first F111 came up with an idea. I went to uh, Cleandra um, Air Museum. Saw the triple one again, and that really lit up my ideas what to do. And I bought the plastic kit there at the same time while I was there. And this that was um, six and a half years ago. And I built the kit while we were on holidays up in Flandre. <laughs> my wife wasn't very happy about that, but anyways, it, <laughs> I built that while we were on holidays away. Uh, so, and she goes, "What are you doing that for?" And I said, "This is the next one I'm building." Said, okay, all the how big? And I said, well, it has to be big. It can't be small because the well, Harry Gurman ones, they were only like 1.2 metres long. Um, so I said, it has to be big. And I spoke to Tyson about it jokingly, and he goes, well, 
has to be big too. So then I put it, took it home and I drew it out on the wall and I kept drawing and I looked at the sizes when I was, and ended up with one six because my pilots were one, one sixth at the time. But, um, but anyways, one six didn't fit my wall. So I ended up going to one seven. So I still fit in my pilots, um, just, and moved down to one, one seven, which is 3.1 meters long. So that fit in my wall, also fit in my trailer at the time. So it was important to fit in the trailer. Otherwise, I'd get in more trouble. And then um, I showed Tyson. It was it was. Um, I just finished the drawing. I had Tyson come around. I said, "You have to come around and have a look at my drawing." And he looked, took one look at it. And he goes, "It's got to be done." He said, "No matter what, it's got to be done." And he said, "If you need money for that, anytime, ask." So he he helped me with it. He he helped me finance the whole thing, which was so grateful for Tyson because. Money's always short, and then we did it as a teamwork effort with the with finances. And we, um, he was around with me quite often when I was making the plug uh, for it. So it, the plug was all done up on like the CAD drawing I did with my students at school. So being a teacher, I was doing graphics at school with my my students, and I I did this as a as a project with my students at school, and everybody had a little part of it at point in time, and with my year twelve students, and we all all put the effort in, we all ended up drawing drawing and and that it was complex with the complex shapes and everything. We, between twenty one of us at the time, we ended up getting the drawing done by the end of the year. Hmm. And then um that Christmas I, I segmented it all and we then cut it all up and on the in the drawing and then um, produced the plug. And and Tyson came around and helped me with that, which was very grateful. And we, we put the plug together. So it's it has a my plug I still have. It has a big a twenty mil aluminium rod stuck up the middle of it, and I just and then there's another two aluminium rods that go down the, through the intakes, uh, through to the outlets, and everything's all uh, I split it up into fifty mil segments. So there's fifty mil every fifty mil is plywood in there, and then styrene plywood, styrene plywood, styrene, and then I just went around with a foam cutter and cut it all, and then uh, we sand it all back, covered it in plaster. Smoothed it all back roughly, and we fiberglassed it in, in two ounce cloth. I sanded all that back, and I do my molds a little bit different, or my plugs a little bit different to everybody else. Is that I leave them rough like that. I sand them back so they're roughly smooth, and then I cover it in aluminium. And Tyson and I sat there for almost three weeks straight there with a rolling pin and a roll of aluminium, 0.6 aluminium. Rolling all the pieces out, I would I'd be there drawing all the all the panel lines onto the plug, and then um, Tyson would be there behind me cutting all the pieces out, and we'd be there contact cement sticking all the pieces on, um, roll them all out so I'd go around the contact on all the shapes and stick them on, and then uh, if you look at my videos, you'll see see that process happening from the time we went through the styrene to fiberglass to um, putting the aluminium on. And um, yeah, so we ended up, we um, did all that. That took us forever to do. And eventually it was, we got to the point of doing the plug. And I did the first, I did all the front sections that was easy to do. And then Tyson came and helped me with all the large parts of the, of the mold. And then that took us three weeks pretty much to do the mold, um, all our polyester. Um, and at that point in time, I'd already, already planned that I was at least going to build 10. Not building ten now, but at the time I wanted to build all ten that are still still around. Um, 
at the moment I'm only doing six of them. So it's due to cost of the undercarriage. Um, while I was doing all that, I was also building the undercarriage. So I, with having the SolidWorks drawing, I was able to then, of, of the fuselage, I was then working through making the undercarriage. And that was, the main undercarriage wasn't something you could just buy off the shelf. I could get the rams, et cetera. So I figured, well, I can't make it electric because the gear has to go up fairly quick. So it had to be all pneumatic. So I had an array, um, because uh, I had, at that point in time, I was working with um, Jet Legend with, with my L39 and F16. Um, so I got the 1.6 F16 and the 1.5 L39 from Jet Legend. And then um, I could see the rams that are on the main undercarriage on the F16 would, would work. So I worked it out for that. That would lift. So I ended up using uh, three of the rams off, off the air undercarriage. Uh, for the F-16, so that's lifting the undercarriage. Um, but I started with one ram lifting it all, but I ended up doing everything. I, I bought my 3D printer. Everything I did was I 3D printed every part of it and made sure it all worked. So I ended up doing seven iterations to do that undercarriage. Um, while I was doing that, we went to um, went to America. So Tyson and I went to America. We did Best in the West uh, twice together, and uh, I didn't go consecutive years i went one i went in um 2016 i went and that's when i started doing the undercarriage um at that point in time we weren't allowed to go and take photos of the undercarriage here in australia so even though they were sitting in a museum you couldn't go and stand in that undercarriage world so i had to go to america to actually stand in the undercarriage world to see the undercarriage and see how it worked and take all of and take the photos and take the measurements I needed of the undercarriage to make it work. So, um, 2016, I started making that undercarriage. I've done the like six iterations I'd done up to the time I got to 2018, and it wasn't working properly still. I just couldn't get the wheels to clap in the middle properly and get it in the hole. So, I was restricted with the, where the hole was. It all had to fit in the bottom of the plane. So, the gear door wasn't too big. So, it all got went up. And then I had to go back, then went back in 2018 and then and then found out there was one angle I'd missed. There's the back plate on the undercarriage because there's a big lump of aluminium on the back. I had originally just saw it as it was going straight down. I didn't realize it had a 10 degree kickback. So as it came out of the well, it was angled backwards at 10 degrees. And then, then the main undercarriage um, then sat at zero degrees level to the ground. And I missed that angle. As soon as I came home and I changed the angle, it all worked. I was like, that was the first time I I put all three rams on it, and my, my son, myself, Nicholas, and myself were in the in the shed, and had I was holding the undercarriage, and at that point, it's all three D printed, had a plywood back plate to it, holding all the parts together, and Nicholas it, hit the hit the um, air on it, and the retrax just went up, and I was like, I was so ecstatic yeah. that this just worked. And then um, at that point in time, I had a fuselage, no undercarriage to fit in it. So at that point, I, I roughly threw it all in the in the well in the, in the into it, and that was uh, that was the first version of one two six uh, one two nine, and it and then it just went in in the well, and I was like, I was so ecstatic that this all this work over the last two years that I'd done, and it just went in the well, and and it just went up. And I like the it's 
The undercarriage now, fully with the wheels and everything on, it's five and a half kilos of weight right. in the main undercarriage. And that's lifting by three rams. And that's, there's a lot of engineering and how I got that all just to lift. So uh, this, the scissor does most of it. The scissor, there's one ram that pulls the scissor in and starts the action, and then the, then the other two then pull the rest of the way. But, it, but it, to see that weight all just rotate and go in the well, and every time I take off, that's when I did the fourth takeoff just recently at um, West Wylong. I took off, and I forgot about the undercarriage. I took off, and it just took off so nicely, and I'm got and I'm mesmerized, and Tyson's on the back, tapped me on the shoulder, the undercarriage. And then I had to then flick the switch and then got to see the whole lot going up as it went past me. And that was that was so cool to see that all that Five work. Kilos of, so you had to then fabricate the all, the whole entire landing gear pretty much. Yeah. Middle. Yeah, so it's all aluminium. Um mine is solid billet. So it's uh, like the main main plates, the flipper plates that hold the wheels on the end. That's uh, twenty-two millimeters thick, solid. And that's that's where the main weight it is. Is the, um, in mind now the new the latest versions of Apollo now now with the carbon plate on the bottom of it to reduce its weight but, and it reduced a kilo of weight the new one's about four and a half kilos and then um, so it, it was that undercarriage is like when I first put it up on the, on the uh, second flight it was like if you listen to the video you'll hear me go in the background <laughs> I was like wrapped when I saw that kick up because the First version of 129, it was it was just a prototype. And then um, I broke it on the fourth flight testing, um, as you do, because it was it was it was only a test article ever. And I pulled it into coming to land on the fourth flight and and then um, yeah, st- tip stalled it to the tailing. And one of those things you get. But um, but yeah, that undercarriage went up on on the, the sixth flight of the, the triple ones that I built ever had and that was a good thing to see it go off on takeoff. Um, but the original one two nine when I built it, it's the grey version. So if you ever go back and if you go back and look at my videos, you'll see there's a grey version. So that's the original one two nine. So it it was my original prototype and uh, at the time when I finished building it, I wasn't particularly well at the time. And Tyson I uh, said to Tyson, you write can you fly it? Because I couldn't fly it at the time because I was pretty unwell with my stomach. Um, and Tyson tipped, yep. And we took it out and we had no idea how this thing's going. Like we worked out the center of gravity and knowing the issues that when Harry German did his F111, the amount of issues he had with the triple one with the center of gravity was how much lifting area there is on it. Uh, he miscalculated the center of gravity by a lot. And when I put mine together, I looked at what, how that one was. And it goes, can't be, and I put it where I thought it should be, and, uh, which is on the pivot point. And it, when it rose and took off, it was like my son Nicholas gave me the biggest, biggest cuddle as it took mm-hmm. off. And, um, and then for then after the first turn, it was like so cool to see this thing going. And then Tyson, and then for Tyson to say. Um, don't have too much elevator. And he was <laughs> using full elevator in the turns. It, like we thought when we looked at it, we looked at the elevator and we got like I had set it up with 60 mil movement. I thought, yeah, that'd be plenty. Like 120 mil. Like these yeah. tarplanes are 
200 millimeters long from end to end. Um, thinking yeah, uh, 60 mil over that much distance, you've got 120. It's a big surface. It should be it should be right. Um, but it was it was 30 32 kilo on the first one. Okay. And um, 2120s, my original 2120s, and it roared off the ground. It took off so well. Um, it probably that first takeoff was probably still the best takeoff. You never put the undercarriage up on that flight or the second one. We did try it on the third. It was up briefly, and then we put it down pretty quickly. Um, but but yeah, it was it was a big sigh of relief after that. The amount of time it like I'd put four and a half years into it at that point in time in building the first one. The second one was easier. Always is. What about the um the the wing mechanism? How did you get that to swing? So um, the swing wing mech, it is SkyMaster's Tomcat's swing wing mech. So it's their one seventh Tomcat swing wing mech. So unfortunately, Paul Bennett had an accident with his first Tomcat, um, and I was looking at them and I said, "Do you want the swing wing mech?" And he turns around and he was so pissed off at the time. I don't know whether he was thinking at all. And he goes, what do you want it for? I said, oh, I can triple one. And he just turned around, grabbed him, and they were, they were black. They were scorched. They were just, because they were on fire. Um, they were so black. And he, I guess, saw them as they were just junk. And he grabbed them, and it was still attached to all the rubble, and gave them to me. And I'm so thankful for it. And I gave them to one of my friends, Phil Collins. And he cleaned them up, checked them over, got rid of all the black off them, changed out everything that needed to change off them and put them all back together again for me. And, um, and yeah, they were, they're still in it. So they, they were in the first 129, they're in my second 129. And awesome piece of engineering. How, how are they driven? Like, do you, is it a servo that triggers it or how does it actually move? So there's uh, Axotronics make a linear servo. So they're a company over in Canada, I believe, and then they, they make them for SkyMaster. They're a little bit different for SkyMaster. They make that aluminum uh, body on the back end of it now. And I found out the reasons why when I was building mine and looking at theirs, the reasons why they needed the aluminum body. And it's just pretty much their mounting bracket they put on it. It wasn't substantial enough and they couldn't really change the design with how it is for their mounting bracket. So they needed to put this aluminum body on the back end of the of the uh, linear servo. Uh, they, I had bought two of them thinking, oh yeah, they'll be big enough for mine. Uh, I was way wrong for that. And unfortunately bought them through SkyMaster, cost me an arm and a leg, i never do that again. Um, so I've still got them. Uh, they cost me like $600 a RAM from, from SkyMaster, thinking that's the only place you'd get it from. Then I, then I got them and I got Axitronics all over them. I, was, uh, I looked at the website and here they are for, $110 a linear servo. Oh. I'm like, $600 on. That's SkyMaster. So, anyways, I am. Um, yeah, so um, 100 mil was too short. I ended up with uh, Axitronics' largest ones, which are 140 in their drive. So, they drive 100, 145 millimeters if you fully extend them. And that's what I'm using is all of that movement um, from forward to rear. And they take. About in their full action, they take about three and a bit seconds to go from from all the way in all the way out. What's that transition like in flight? 
um, transition. I'm getting. I'll get to that in a sec. But the the Rams, the Rams, the that I've made another different bracket on the end of it. So I'm using the plastic body that comes with it, which works fine because I've made a different bracket, so it holds it all together right. So uh, one two, the original first version one two nine, it only retract, only moved the wings when it was on the ground, and it was always the testing regime all the way through. So everything's been testing, testing, testing. So um, First one two nine was just pretty much to prove it it could fly with the wings out. The wings were pretty much there was nothing on the wings. They were just a set of wings, and I still use those wings. The, in the accident, the wings were still fine, and I use those wings just for as a jig now for setting up with swinging mate in the ones I'm building currently. And because there's nothing that moves, they're just a wing. Those nothing moves. There's no servos in it, um, and then. That was the downfall of version one because there was no flaps. I didn't have enough washout. I only had two degrees of washout in it. My current one here has uh, four and a half degrees of washout in it. And one, two, six, which I've just finished, has, has almost five degrees of washout in it. Um, and that has been proven to be very, very effective to help it with its tip stalling issue it had in the first one. Um, so when I after the first one, it had it was just testing just to see its flight characteristics. And that was it for the first one. Then the second one came along, and because I put a lot more effort into the first, second one, it was fully scaled up with everything in it. So it's got its and afterburner rings and everything. And uh, there's 16 servos in the wing. So to make make the wing operational, there's there's the one flap servo two. Two servers run the leading edge slat, and there's two servers that do these spoilers in, in each wing. So that's just one wing. And then I have two servers that drive the wings back, so that's another two. And then and then I have another two servos that run the glove. So at the front of the wing, there's a glove bit that pivots, and it's you only see them in the front 11s. The front 11s, the only one that had these pieces at the front of the wing that would pivot, and that was allowed the slats to slide out and to give it a little bit extra lift on the fuselage. And they're very, very effective having those tip up. Um, and the leading edge slats are very effective. Um, so 16 servos in it, just in the wing. So the total plane has 32 servos in it. In it and has two smooth flights in it. It has a 26 smooth flight and a 16 smooth flight. So when I first was looking at the design, and I saw Rick then come out with the original 26 smooth flight, and it didn't have a lot of things in it. And I approached him and said, I'm building this triple one. And I said, I need it to do this, 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 and this. Can you do that? And he goes, well, apparently it can't, but let me work on it. And over the time that I was building, building that, the first one, he'd worked out all the issues I needed to do to, to put in the triple one. To get it to work, so that I had the everything that I wanted when I got to the second one. So then, then by that time he had the, the sixteen come out, and so the sixteen, the smooth fly sixteen, just runs the wing. So the sixteen servos run on the into the end of the sixteen, and then the rest of the plane is run off the twenty six. So that's that's how all that works. So if you ever see the, the the front of the plane off, you'll see there's two screens on the front. And that's the two smooth flights so I can work with them is on the front. So 
Well, that was without Rick with that. There's no other product on the market at this point. Pump still can do it to make that plane work. Um, and just purely because Rick had put so much effort in to help me with that, it can fly. And that, yeah, that's a big thing is those smooth flights make that plane work. Um, because there's nothing else that can do 32 servos. Yeah. Have 32 servos. Now, especially when you look at it, the flaps on their own, um, majority of the flap is there's, there's the two servos for the leading edge. There's a flap servo then and the glove. So you've got um, two gloves, it's plus leading edge, it's just four twists for the flaps. So there's 10 servos just on my flap channel. And when I flip the flap, flap switch, there's 10 servos moving all at the same time just to make that wing work. That's crazy. So that smooth flight is all just working one channel pretty much Gee. on 10 servos. And the other six is just there for the spoilers because there's four four servos there for the spoiler and then there's and then, and then there's the other two for the swing wing. So, and that's all on the 16. How, how much does this model weigh? So my current one, my 129, weighs uh, 30.5 kilos, plus um, seven litres of fuel, and you can in what's in the header tanks. So it's two three-litre tanks. Uh, just normal Jubo three-litre tanks are in the bomb bay. So in the bomb bay, there's, that's where the tanks are. And then and the, there's the two header tanks, which are also in the bomb bay. And that's where all electronics are. So in, in the I have a whole hatch where the whole bomb bay comes down. And then that's got all the electronics is sitting in there. Mm. Um, and everything can be as far forward as possible for the engines. And the size of the tail planes at the back, they, they, they weigh significantly. Um, but the wings are not composite as such. They're all built. The tail planes are built. The fin is built. So when you, if you look at the videos, you'll see the structure of built in it. And I learned this one off Peter Goldsmith. He was showing lots of videos at the time using 0.6 ply, and I was at the time I was contemplating what to do with the wings and then drew the wing and the wings up and he was building something else at the time. I think it was one of his gliders he was building and had 0.6 ply and I sent him a message and said, what do you reckon if I do a triple one wings out of the 0.6? And he said, it'll be bulletproof. Okay, so I used the 0.6 ply. So it's um, Boatcraft Pacific, which only is at, just up the road from me, um, sells all the different aircraft fly. And they have the 0.6 ply. So I was in, um, at the time, I was working with Tyson to get himself a laser cutter. And I had Tyson get the biggest laser cutter possible at the time because I was thinking, I need a laser cutter to cut these wings. And I said to Tyson, I can't get the same size as mine. You need the next one up. He goes, why? And I said, well, I need the triple one wings built. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he ended up, he got the, the, bigger, the bigger laser cutter for me as well as for himself. Um, but yeah. And that just goes in one sheet is the length of the wing, which is 12, 1250 mil is the wing panel. And that's the cut one hit and the wing panel for the skins. And for the for the wings and the tarplanes and the fin, there's, I've got a jig and I've just build it like a real one, lay the skin in and drop all the ribs in. Uh, there's carbon fiber. I used uh, six ounce carbon in the wings um, and there's uh, three strips down each wing on the top and the bottom. Um, plus uh, six mil, um, four four mil uh, aircraft fly spars that go in there, et cetera, et cetera. And How does it fly? As I say to everyone, it's a big trainer. It is so easy to fly. 
I'm pulling it away. But in the air, it's just such a big trainer. It's with the wings out, it just cruises. It's it doesn't matter the speed. I've slowed it all the way up now. I've gone all the way down to like just above idle, and it just it slows up so nicely in the air. I've scared Tyson a few times because it and his gammy whack on the back to push the throttle forward because it's it just it just sits there and it, when the flaps are out, it is so nice. Like I don't do that without the flaps out now. With full flap out there as the leading edge, it can fly really, really slow. And and it goes from slow to very, very fast. Um, like full throttle with the wings out, you're looking at over 300 kilometers an hour. And then and then to move the wings back and you're close to 500, it was like, ooh, really? <laughs> that's pretty cool. So it makes a big difference. Yeah. Oh, it makes a huge difference with those wings back. But it's the same plane. Doesn't matter where the wings are forward or the wings are back. It's the same plane. It just goes faster. Um, it took me five flights to get to that point. So it's all, as I was saying before, it's, it has been a testing regime all the way through. It took me six months just before I got the first flight on, of my current uh, 129, just from doing all the different testing. And I was testing, testing, testing. And then we accidentally took off at Prams. Like it's not a script that you want to be flying a big jet off. It's uh, very bumpy. But there was a jet meet there. We saying for small jets, and I said to them, "Yeah, right. If I just do a taxi run with it, and I took it to the end of the runway, and I pushed the, I had full flap out, pushed it to, um, and I had, I had Derek Ponorella next to me uh, for this one, and I said said to him, I'm, I'm just going to do a half throttle taxi run with it, see what it does, and I got halfway down the runway, just going across the cross strip and hit a bump, and the things like. A foot in the air, I'm going, there it goes, oi! <laughs> I pulled the throttle back and landed again. And it flew across the flew across the whole runway to the other side of, like, across the, tack, the cross strip, flew across the cross strip, touched down again, and then rolled out. And not many people actually saw it take off. It was amazing. It was like Derek and I saw it, and then we turned around to everybody else, and they said, did you see that? I said, so you what? I said, it was in the air. <laughs> <laughs> That was, that was it was a short hop. It was only in there 10 meters, but it was yeah. So that we, that proved it to me that at that point in time it was ready. And then when, then we took we took it to casino after that and uh ended up having a few issues. I ended up breaking the the nose leg steering arm, which then that stopped that ended up it taxied out and then we took home we did that twice and then took it to Kempsey. Went to test flight there and it rained and then I had an issue with one of the smooth flights and and then we sorted that problem. Again, that was another trip. So there's three trips we did before we then ended up last year at the Casino Jet Meet uh, last July. So I had it finished at Christmas and it took me all the way through to July before it was actually ready to fly and before I was actually ready to fly it with all the testing I was doing on the ground. And um, yeah, push the throttle forward. We didn't put the gear up in the first flight. The first flight again was just to test it that it could take off and land. And that was, yeah, that was a real journey. We took off, we put the flaps out. So the first flight we took off, no flap, took off, did the first lap. And always did in the first lap. Right, as soon as I got it trimmed, I'll drop, do something. And I'm still doing that. And um, 
we dropped the flaps out and we worked out the full flap and half flap were all pretty good and then trimmed it all out and then landed it about a half flap. Um, I do land now a full flap and take off a full flap because it's more effective. Um, but the first flight, that was so cool, getting that first flight out of it. Um, again, it was a sigh of relief. There was a lot of stress on that first flight, but it was good. Um, then the second one, we then um, we took it to Wang this year. So it was like Mangarata was in end of March. So that was from July to March because of COVID. We, I missed all that time out. So it pretty much sat in my trailer for that time and then doing modifications on it and changing things and making things better. And then we flew it at Wang and that, and that was the first time their gear went up. And I said to Tyson, it's going up. As soon as those wheels are off the ground, I'm flicking the switch. And he said, okay. And then um, it, I was so wrapped when those wheels just went away in the well on the takeoff. And we did that flight, put the gear down and came around and landed it. It was so cool. And everybody asked, can you get a flight again? Oh, that's it. Done. <laughs> <laughs> so how many have you made now? You've made two or three? Well, there's two that are two that are all fully scale up. I've built three. So the first one was the prototype. Then I built my current 129 and I've built 126. 138 is almost finished too. That's Tyson's. So um, so Tyson's is almost finished. That's 138. So it'll be finished um, probably February, March next year. And then, and then Aaron Gall is getting the next one, which will be, um, it'll be great. And it'll be um, um, only under Angler. So that's the next one. So it'll be a G, uh, F111G. And then there's two more left after that. Okay. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, so third flight, we, we just took off again, test out a few more things. Checked how how slow it could fly and whatnot, and and then we um, we rolled it in the third flight. So it's amazing to roll. It all of a sudden, as soon as you get that on an iPad, you realise how big of an aircraft you have in the air when you see that with the wings out, fully swept, fully out, knife edge going around a roll. It's it's pretty spectacular. And then uh, so this was out of Inglewood. We did this only a month of the bit ago now for its third flight, and. Um, and I said to Tyson before, because we always make a plan beforehand, I said, we loop, roll, we loop, we land. So we rolled it. That was one lap. I took it around and I pushed it full throttle and Tyson said, you sign up? I said, no, nope, we're going through full throttle. So I went, pushed it through full throttle. I just yanked that elevator full up because uh, there was an incident with another scrap built just many weeks before or a month or so before. And um, there had been lots of comments about how mine would then go with the wings breaking. And I said to everybody, I'm going to test this if and see what, we, what happens. And I, I pushed that through a full throttle, full up elevator, and it was the smallest loop. I think I, I could have, it was like 20 meter diameter, pushing a full, a 38 kilo model. Like I'm, I'm fully filled still, pretty much. Pushing that through at 400 kilometer out through this loop and then pull the throttle back through the top of that loop. It just went around. It just did a perfect circle through the loop. But wings bent. I had those wings bent about 200 mil. Oh, gee. Where they were. And they're perfectly curved like they should be. I was so wrapped when we saw it. It was just like perfectly curved wings going through the loop. And it was like, oh. Tyson tapped me on the back and he goes, You tested that? 
<laughs> we brought it around, we landed it. Uh, I spent probably six or seven hours going through those wings, trying to find any any faults in them, um, checking right through. Just give us the dimensions. Just go over the dimensions. How long is the plane, you know, the fuselage and how? what's the wingspan? So it's 3.1 metres long with a 2.8 metre wingspan. Uh, mine weighs at, weighs at 30.5 kilos dry. Um, it is about 37 kilos wet, getting up to 38 kilos. Uh, it has uh, two 6,000 million packs that run the turbines, uh, twin JPX 120s, slow spool. Jet cat. If you ever watch my video, if you watch my videos on when I spool, it's on brakes. And it's on brakes for like the full size. It would sit on the end of the runway, spool at the full power, and then it'll let it off brakes. And that's the main reason is because I'm, I'm counting that time for those engines to spool the full power when I run a release. Oh. And so they're, they're slow spool, gas start, all old technology. With so engines. is it JPX or the Jetcat? Jetcat, Jetcat one oh, Okay, you said JPX, I thought of that. Um, it's just, yeah. JPX, uh, yeah, it's Jetcat 120. Yeah, yeah, stuck in the brain from talking before. Um, they're a good engine, the JPX. Um, good stories about them. Um, but... 20-year-old engines. Yeah. Uh, thanks, to, thanks to Phil Collins. He's been servicing them. Um, he said they're on their last service now, so I've got to be nice and gentle to them because uh, they're getting very ruined parts now. Um, but, yeah, so after I, the first 129, I broke both front wheels and, and Phil had to search high and low to find me two front wheels for it. Um, they shattered both front wheels when they ingested part of the runway. Mm. So, yeah, so they're, they're a good engine and they don't stop. That's the good thing with the L120s is I've never had them stop, ever. And, and so a lot of people will say, really? And said, but the whole time that one of the 120s was in my MiG-15 and like it was in there for seven years, um, never stopped. I rolled it once, it in, um, put it through a roll once, it tried to stop, got a bubble, tried to stop, restart it in flight. And you hear about impact with their restart. This restart was no, no extra, it just restarted. It just went through, blew the smoke out the back and restarted. And that's 120, so a good thing. Um, very good engine. And as Phil Cohen says, they're tractor engines, because that's what they come out of. The original engine was built built around a uh, tractor turbine. And that's what most of the guts are around it. Yeah, okay. So they're pretty solid. Well, okay. The F-111, it's an amazing plane to see fly. It's an amazing plane to see on, on the ground as well because it's, it's something a bit different. And, you know, people of our vintage, the F-111 in Australia is an iconic plane, really. Like if that fuel bird, you know, that's that's what we remember. So it's 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 great to see that that plane flying and and well done for bringing it to life because now we can all we can all enjoy it. You mentioned something to me earlier. So and you you said you're a teacher. Yep. You you said to me off air that you, you're teaching a lot about planes in your in your school life. Tell me a bit about that. So it's um it was twenty years ago now, and I. I was carpenter at the time, um, 
I have had it or still have an issue with my stomach and uh, the medication I was on at the time, I had to get out of the sun. So when I left school, I had a passion that I wanted to be a manual arts teacher. Unfortunately, back at that point in time, um, this was 20 years ago now, I went to uni, I went to apply and then found out manual arts teachers don't exist to design technology. So it was actually what I was destined to do. So I was, um, I was a little disappointed it wasn't manual arts because manual arts, you just, there, you build woodwork, metalwork, stuff. But once I got into uni with it and then found out that yeah, I could actually do a little bit more than just doing woodwork and metalwork and, and draw some stuff here. And then I realized that going through it, I could probably actually bring planes into this and do and teach that and do that at school and, and make my work a little bit more fun. So everything I did at uni, I, all the assessments that my teachers were getting really annoyed. Um, I ended up getting HDs at the end um, with everything, but they got annoyed because everything I related back was back to aviation, in fact, <laughs> what I do with them. And my last project was actually my Voyager that I currently have with my sport jet. Because it's it's now, it's um, it's 16 years old, my sport jet. And, and um, I used that for that. And Peter Agnew was on board with me with that one. I had to find somebody that would help me out and be doing, like would say, as a business partner sort of thing to it. And I ended up getting HD thanks to a bit of help from Peter with that with it and from every, all the way through my teachers kept saying you'll never be able to do this at school you know and said that all the time well eventually i got to my my original school at winnenor state high and i did what i was told for the first six months and i said to one of the other tech teachers i said i want to do this at school and i said i want to bring a radio control aircraft and have the kids build it and they go yeah, it sounds like a good idea, but I don't know how you're going to fund it. And I said, well, there must be some way to get a grant for it. So I went to the principal and I said, this is what I want to do. And I said, I want to, want to build a, with my year 10 class, because they're a little bit more um, up top, should be. Um, and I said, I want to build this and do this with my year 10s. And he goes, okay. And he said, laughingly, he laughed at me at the same time and said, well, if you can fund it and find the funding for it, you can run it. And like for me, that's like everything's been a challenge. It's always a challenge. When somebody throws something at me like that, it's a challenge. When somebody says something can't be done, it's even more of a challenge. And um, two weeks later, I had the funding. $5,500 I, I needed. I had the funding. I found a government grant that I could get. And there was a lot of things I had to do to get that grant. A lot of things I had to show what outcomes I had with students after the getting the grant as well. But I got the grant and then run my in second semester. And I'm, like, I'm a newbie teacher. First year out, first six months in doing this with my students. And my kids, they were just so wrapped. It's something totally different. They would build a model aircraft at school. And then I'd take them out in the oven and fly it. So I'd, we'd take 10 weeks to build it. And now we're at 15. So I'm like, everything's a jet. Yeah. And I still fly them out. So another jet. So I built these Depron, a uh, six mil Depron um, with two servos, Spectrum 
um, DX6s and a 2200 milliamp bike pack. And, and that was 16 years ago now that I was doing that. And, and that was so cool to start it. And then, and then the people that I did all my paperwork and showed the outcomes and showed what I could do. And at that point in time, there was the UAV Challenge was happening. It was happening in Queensland. And it was an international event as well as uh, Australian event. And then we had all the international people come. And part of the deal was I would go to that. So in my second year of teaching, I had my second group of year 10s go through. We built the F-15s again. We got the FPV goals and FPV camera going it. And back then, they were pretty, it was yeah, not as good as what it was now. And pretty much it was teaching the kids on how to deliver a, a um, parcel to a particular point in time on the ground to save Outback Joe. And you'd fly over the top of two hurdles and you had had to cross 20 metres across the top of two hurdles at four metres off the ground. So I had to teach the kids how to fly proficiently, get them to fly at four metres off the ground, <laughs> fly level, in a smooth line while somebody else was on the goggles with another radio ready to flick a button to drop this parcel and hit Outback Joe. And we entered the first one and it was like, we landed that thing like two metres away from him the first first shot. And then we got, they had to do it three times. The second time they come back and then um, they did it again. And we ended up, we kept, we ended up coming second in the first time there. And that was, that was pretty cool. And at, at the same time, I then, I was asked by the same people who gave out the grant and said, so we've got X amount of money to give out for another 16 schools. So I ended up teaching, I ended up uh, advertising and went in the various events and showing what I was doing. And I got another 16 schools to do what I was doing. And, and I still work with some of them now. Uh, some of them have stopped doing it, but there's not still three of them still doing what I do. That's awesome. Um, with, with the aircraft. And I still work with them and, and give them updates of what I'm doing and how to do it and whatnot. Have any of the kids sort of progressed with Aeromodeling? Um, so that was 2016, 2015, I came second, the UAV challenge. Um, and then I then moved to school. So I moved to, um, Calabar Community College. So I started winter North, went to Calabar Community College. I then, I was lucky enough, they gave me the grant money again, because I was the one that running it. So then I took, I started it all up there and, and these kids are now in industry. The ones I took for this one, um, as as per a lot of the other kids I took after that are in industry now, um, not flying model aircraft. They're flying full size and working on full size. Yeah, it's cool. So, like, yeah. So most of the kids I've taught aren't actually doing it as a hobby. They're doing it for money, and that's that was the whole point. Of what I was doing is as a career path. And everything at school when you're doing teaching kids at school, it's not about doing hobbies. It's about career paths. And I had to show how the career path was working and outcomes to get kids in the career path to get money. So I took my second group to, and they were, they weren't the best behaved kids in the world. They were grade 10. And I picked out four of the worst kids and they just took a shine to me. They were the worst kids to every other teacher in the school. But they loved me because of what I did. And then I took, 
taught them up and like they were so dedicated with me they were with me every seven uh, five days a week five afternoons five mornings i was charging batteries like you wouldn't believe it i had like 50 batteries we were roll- i was rolling them through four charges every day hmm. um teaching these four up with delivering that parcel on the spot they were no good at talking they like we had in those UAE challenge we had to do a a, a speech for um, 15 minutes um, off the top of the head, no palm cards, with a PowerPoint, explain what they've done and how they got up to this point. They were no good at talking, but they could do what they could do with their hands, and and I knew that. I wasn't planning on them winning the actual talking part of it, and that at the end of it was a big part was the talking part. But we got all the way through the end, and they were last. They were dead last at, right at the beginning. But they had this little rule in it that I was using and I was playing with the whole time. And said, it's not about how you talk. It's not about how, it's how you act and how you treat that aircraft and how you treat everybody else when you go out there to see those judges with that aircraft. But I don't care how you go when you do the talk and the videos, etc. But we were dead last with that. And... Every other year, like they had run two years previous, you had to win the actual talking part to win the competition. But they had a rule in there stating if you hit Abac Joe, you won. No, if but maybe you won. See, you hit Abac Joe. And I convinced the judges who weren't using the chocolate bar that everybody else was using. I'd made up this block of 42 by 19 block. I stuck it to the bottom of the aircraft, a little hook with the camera and everything. And it was another F-15, Depron F-15. And I put those kids out there, basic goggles, basic camera, basic everything, flew across that, dropped the parcel, landed in his hat. We won. And that is still on, on, on the internet now. If you look up UAV Challenge, you'll still see that photo pops up with the hat, the block, the block sitting in the top of his hat. That's cool. Yeah. Next, and we won. And that was five and a half thousand dollars. We just like first year I was at, at at school. We just, I just all of a sudden scored my five, myself another five and a half thousand. And if I didn't get that money, I was probably it probably would have limited me to what I could do at school. Which I ended up I had ten radios at that point in time. By the time I won that. I had doubled the amount of radios I had. I bought all this other gear for the kids. Um, all four, all four kids, I gave X amount of money to as well. We and Hobby King at the time was pretty good with with um, everything that's cheap. Hobby King, like now, um, and we could get some pretty cheap stuff and put things together. And like, I ended up, I was, um, I'd be buying two to three hundred receivers a year. I ended up. My program, by the time I finished there in 2018, I had I had over 300 aircraft in my hangar at the end. And that was every year. From 2014 all the way through to 2018 when I finished at Powerwell, I had 300 aircraft in that hangar every year. And I'd get my trailer, we'd take them all out of the up. I'd pack the trailer all the way to the top, in the back of my car, all the way to the top of the aircraft. We'd take a take a trip out to Tingapama Rooftop and um, and I'd organised to have that field to myself 
and all the other members would be amazed when all of a sudden I'd pull out 300 aircraft out of the back of the trailer. Right. <laughs> Fucking amazing. And then and the, the kids were down pat with their flying. It was so good with their flying. So. Now, Chris, it sounds like you're a project guy. You've had a lot of projects throughout your lives and life, and, and a lot of those projects have not been short projects, but what's the next model project that you'd like to embark on? Next model? Um, well, I'd like to finish all the triple ones. I've still got another, I've got to finish off 138 and I've got another three to build. So that's that's another three years away. So that's that's a long time to, to think about how far ahead. I do, I've, I have plans on, I've got a pre-wing Raptor, which I got off John McCann. He gave it to me for us and he dropped it in the pond apparently and it's all buggered. Um, but I've put it all back together again and I'm planning to um, fiberglass that mould it and produce one off that to my son to fly, Nicholas. Um, I was having a joke with Tyson Dodd the other day about, and I said, I'm sad. He goes, why are you sad? And I said, I can see my L39's going to disappear off me. Hmm. He goes, what do you mean? And I said, when we're at uh, West Wyalong, Nicholas did his first takeoff and take off in flight all himself with my L39. And I can see shortly, once he lands it, it's like, that's it. That's that it. plane's gone. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tyson's got Mac to steal planes, his planes as well. So that's a consequence of getting your kids involved. Yeah. But my, son, my son, Nicholas, he, he's not over it. He's, he's, He's loving it. Yeah. It might be that I have that function that he's getting it as well. Um, so That's true. But it, yeah, it's been a good thing. But overall, probably the time I did a calendar with my kids was probably my highlight of what I was doing with the early challenge. Um, like my, my second team I took, which were just the ones we won with that ended up going worldwide in the Qantas magazine. Uh, we got to go out to Oki, got flight simulators, we got this and that and everything for that team. And again, they weren't the smartest kids, but they they pulled it off and won. And then, and then the next year, I then took a brand new team back, did this, exactly the same thing, except I had the plan was next year, I'd go back, we'd win that, that talking bit. We won the talking bit and then won the competition again. There you go. Um, and now I ended up, in those seven years we did it, we won, we won five times. So, so that was pretty cool. Nah, that is. Now, speaking of pretty cool, we're up to the final question, and it's the question that everybody wants to know the answer to, and it's it relates to being cool. It's it's what has been your all time favorite model? All time, probably my mid fifteen. It's been it always surprises me. You still got that? It's not the my mid fifteen UTI my six two two. I read me 15. Everybody yeah. loves it when it comes in. That's it the, doesn't yeah. fly too often anymore, but it, I took it out at West Wyalong just recently. I hadn't flown it for a year and a half. I did a brief look over it at home and then had another brief look over it when I got there. And and I did a really, really quick flight with it. And everybody goes, what was that quick for? I said, well, I haven't flown it for a little bit. I just wanted to check it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I did a Quick flight with it. I only did like four or five laps with it, landed it, checked it over, and then went did a proper full scale flight with it. And um, but it, it it's such a good thing. It's like its age. It's sixteen and a half years old now. It's it's getting there. It's and it flies so well, and it's done a lot of flying, and it's fully scratch built too. 
Well, uh, everything that you build is scratch built. Right? So that's what it sounds like. You're not buying a kit. You're not buying an ARF. Yeah, well, uh, everybody was surprised when I got the the Jet the Jet Legend L39 and the F16. But I said, well, I painted it, did the cockpit. So yeah. I, I can't see you sitting still uh, staring at a model saying, oh, it's finished. Yeah. But apart from the MIG, it was probably the um, – everybody's – Everybody's probably seen the accident that Aaron Gull and David Gull had with his hawk, their hawk. Yeah, big one. Uh, the, when it was brown, um, it's a little different now. Um, that came to me in a plastic bag. And and said, what can you do with it? And I said, well, I was pointed to the bin, but they said, no, no, we want it fixed. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, it's, it went back together. It looks so good. It flies so good. It flies so much better than it. That's really nice, that model. That, they've done an yeah. excellent job on that. And somehow I took three kilos out of it. Oh, really? Yeah, so I don't know how I did that. <laughs> but anyways, I took three kilos out of it and, and scaled it up and it looks better than anyone that's brand new now. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, Chris, the battery's are about to go flat in my recording device. We've been talking for that long. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and hearing the story about the F-111, about the work you've done at school, the, the scratch building, it's like it's inspired me. The problem is that I just don't have that talent that I think you've got. But no doubt if I spent some time with you, you could teach me. It's not how I do it. It's not the skills I have. It's um, it's up here in your head. Do you want the challenge? That's the thing. And I've always looked at the next challenge. What's the next challenge for me to do? And scratch building has a challenge to it, but if you don't want the challenge, you buy a kit, something that's known. Everybody seems to think, well, it's better if you go for the known, whereas you look at all the aircraft I've built at the time, it's always the unknown when I, when I take that first leap when it takes off. And I guess that was, that was a big thing for Tyson when he flew the first one to nine. He knew how much work I'd put in. And he knew how much he would put into it as well. And because I was so unwell, he had to do the maiden. And it was like, he was shaking. I'd never seen him shake before, but he was shaking. Yeah. And, and that was, I reckon it was pretty cool for him too, to, to have the first flight of Triple Woman here in Australia with that size. So he still talks about it. But. Well, I know that when I saw it at Wing Jets, there were a lot of people that were really proud of the fact that you, you'd brought that F-111 to life and, and you know, there were, there were people coming up and saying, you've got to go and have a look at this plane. And, and it was a big deal to see that plane fly. So so well done for, for getting that project done. Thank you. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted and what an episode it has been, quite a big one with our chat with Chris Patterson, a big thank you to Chris and I'll tell you what, if you get a chance to get onto YouTube and see if you can do a search for F-111 RC plane or something like that, you'll find Chris's plane flying but it is a real beauty. Uh, tell you what, we need to encourage him to do like a, a dump and burn with an F-111, that'd be awesome, just put a pipe out the back and spray some fuel or something and ignite it and Oh, that'd be awesome. Uh, I wonder whether it could be done. I'm going to get on to Chris and ask him if he can do that. But uh, that was uh, amazing what that, that guy can do and, and his ability to scratch build the way that he can and, and the, the dedication to Jet. So he's really obsessed. And as I say, 
all roads lead to jets and in Chris's case, they led there very early. A bit of a pioneer in the Australian jet scene. So well done, Chris. Well, look, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, don't forget to subscribe to Flat Out RC Podcast, no matter what platform you listen to it on, and the YouTube channel, and the Instagram and the Facebook. We're still stuff happening all on those channels. Don't forget about upcoming events. We've got the Bansdale Warbird events happening over the Melbourne Cup long weekend, or the weekend of the um, Pride of the Melbourne Cup. Uh, uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, if, if Thank you to all those people that are sending messages with guest ideas. Really appreciate them. Keep them coming because it was makes a bit life easier for me to try to get different guests that you might be interested in so i uh, really appreciate that so keep up the good work and if anybody's got any events coming up yell out we'll give them a plug as well so should be back next week uh i'll have a bit more of a pep in my step i believe once i get over this injury it is annoying me to say the least but anyway we'll be back with more <laughs>